Blog Talk Radio.
broadcasting live to billions of people. Cameras on the streets tracking who we meet and call this liberty. talking about tonight, the way that the government has managed to insert itself by some type of uh, a horrible creeping virus into every aspect of our lives, exerting uh, control and influence on everything that we do, uh, not just as a, uh, as a nation, but as individuals. Everything that we do as individuals now is rapidly becoming uh, monitored and uh, uh, permitted, and uh, everything that uh, everything that goes on in the nation comes under some type of control. Uh, you can look at just uh, some of the smaller things, like uh, like gun laws. Forty thousand gun laws on the books. The the number of IRS laws that no one knows, not even the IRS. The uh, the number of laws and uh, controls in Obamacare, in the new health care regulations that even the authors uh, don't know, uh, and, and that could be uh, that, that could be a, a, a lie. I'm sure that uh, they know a great deal of the stuff because they put it in there. But we have the government managing to to insert itself into every facet of our lives. We're going to be talking with Miss Becky Akers in just a moment about that. Uh, first off, I'd like to I'd like to thank Pokerface for letting us use uh, the music control uh, to start the show with. And uh, usually, I'll play it almost all the way out full because I want people to listen to it. I want people to hear uh, what they're saying, and I want to remind folks that uh, tomorrow. Uh, here at our facilities in Central Texas, we'll have the second Ghost of Goliad Fundamentals of Rifle Marksmanship course running uh, Saturday and Sunday. It's a two-day course designed to uh, give you uh, a rock-solid foundation in the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship, rifle safety. Uh, we're going to be teaching the things like uh, sling use, positions, the exact steps it takes to execute the shot. How to zero your rifle. Inches, minutes, clicks, how they pertain to your rifle. That's all the knobs, the screws, all the bells and whistles on your rifle, what they mean, how they function, 
and get you to correctly zero your rifle using uh, those devices. Uh, we'll teach you to to shoot at multiple targets from different positions, doing magazine changes, and under the constraints of time limits. Uh, the course is open to individuals of all skill levels. You don't have to be... Uh, you can be any skill level. You, we On a Saturday morning, I'll have somebody that shows up that has never touched a rifle before on one end of the line, and the other end of the line, I'll have a couple of guys who are getting ready to deploy, and they want to take the course as a foundation for their designated marksmen or their sniper schools. This will be running this weekend. Along with the... Uh, rifle marksmanship, you're going to get a good dose of Texas history. That's how the state of Texas used to be the Republic of, Te of Texas, the only state in the nation that used to be its own uh, its own separate individual uh, republic. <clears throat> and on top of that, we'll be giving you top of the hour introductions to self-reliance and prepping, prepping topics. These aren't, uh, these aren't classes. These are just introductions to self-reliance and prepping topics, ideas. We want you to start thinking about the things that you need to do in order to become more self-reliant, to take care of yourself and your family in the event that uh, there's nobody left to take care of you, like in the old days when we used to take care of ourselves, right? That will be this coming weekend at our facilities, uh, Battle Road facilities here in Central Texas. I also want to uh, to tell everyone thank you who attended the uh, the Battle Road Zombie Destruction Biathlon uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we haven't done a uh, uh, really an AAR on it, but I want to tell everybody thanks who attended all of the uh, ROs who came and uh, and shot the course and then also helped out afterward. And then all the runners. We had about 110 folks all together this time. And uh, we had a lot of new stuff on the course, a lot of uh, new obstacles. Uh, we changed up the shooting stations, and, this, and we're going to do the same thing again in April. Uh, if you haven't been to one of the uh, biathlons, it's a 4.5-mile looping course with eight shooting stations along the trails. And uh, there'll be four rifle and four pistol stations. And then there are obstacles in between the stations. Uh, nothing to break you. We just want you to get used to to doing things with your gear on. You know, the reason this came about is because uh, for the last uh, 10 or 15 years, I've had people uh, that I've discussed this stuff with, uh, who would who would tell me, yes, you know, if anything happens, I've got my rifle, I've got this backpack, and I got these boots, and and I've got this uh, water carrying device, and these magazine carriers, etc. And I would ask them, well, how does it work? You know, have you put it all on and and moved about in it? And they, the majority would say, well, no. But it's the best, it's the highest quality gear, etc. And that may be true. It may be great gear. Uh, but how will you know unless you put it all on and move around and try and uh, move about and shoot in it? 
Uh, and the answer is you're not going to know. You're not going to know if the boots uh, uh, don't work. You're not going to know if the backpack straps rub a bloody blister on your shoulder after a mile and a half. You're not going to know if when you put it all on that you can't access your pistol or your rifle mags. And there's very few places that are going to let you do anything about this. Uh, when you go to most ranges, they don't want you moving around. They don't want you wearing any gear. They want you to stand in the box and shoot one round every three to five seconds. Uh, we're not like that here. We want you to get all your gear on. We want you to run. We want you to climb uh, over walls. We want you to go uh, through underground uh, trenches. Uh, we want you to uh, to go down uh, a half a mile of a dry creek bed with uh, 25 or 30 trees uh, uh, falling across it. We want you to do all of this stuff with all your gear on so that you can see how it functions. And uh, the time to figure it out is at a time and place like one of these events, not uh, whenever you and your family's survival might depend on it. Okay? The next event will be in April 11th in 2015. So uh, be sure and keep checking the website because we'll put up the uh, the Eventbrite sign up for it in, uh, in the next week or so and folks can get started signing up for it. I imagine that we're going to have a sold-out event in April. We can only do so many folks because because we we start folks off every five minutes uh, on the run and uh, and we only have enough daylight to do X number of folks, right? So once we put the Eventbrite page up, I'll, uh, I'll send out notifications and you guys can start signing up. Make sure you get a slot for it. And then we have uh, the December 6th and 7th, the Three Percenters Grid Down Combo Course. Uh, that will be uh, taught by Spark31, the uh, combo guru. <clears throat> this is the, the communications class that you really need uh, in order to understand how you're going to communicate with the rest of the world in a grid down situation. This is a two-day course, uh, one day of classroom and then a one day of a field training exercise, and we're going to be uh, we're going to be discussing how to set up communications, how to get communications in a grid down situation. Because if you don't, if 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 the utilities are gone and there's no landlines, there are no uh, cell phones, then it's going to be up to you to develop a way to communicate. And that's likely only going to be in some form of radio. And uh, we'll also be discussing during the class the the importance and the strategy of you using your radio communication system as the base for your intelligence gathering and planning. All right? Because uh, while... While a lot of the things that may be going on around you may be encrypted or coded uh, and you may not be able to listen to them, that's only going to be a tiny amount of the bandwidth. A much greater portion of the stuff that's going to be going across the airways is going to be open-air, unencrypted information. And you'll need to understand how that you can harvest that information and use it in order for you to make decisions uh, for you and your families and your group's safety. Okay? That's December 6th and 17th. You can go to the website, outroadusa.com, and uh, get signed up for that course. 
All right. Uh, I want to uh, to bring on Miss Akers. Uh, Miss Becky Akers is an author, a historian, uh, a columnist. She's been writing uh, and speaking to folks uh, for quite a few years now. She's been a uh, a columnist from Lou Rockwell uh, for over, I believe, over ten years now, and. Uh, and she's taken every opportunity to inform folks about the loss of their freedoms and liberties. And we're going to ask her about uh, more about that right now. Uh, Ms. Akers, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure and a privilege, and I am very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you, Mr. Adam. Well, we are equally grateful, more than you, we're equally grateful to to be able to to hear you speak about the stuff we're getting ready to uh, to talk about tonight. Uh, let's start off with uh, kind of an introduction. Uh, a lot of folks uh, are aware of who you are and what you do, but I'm sure there's quite a few folks that, that aren't. Uh, can you tell us about how you... A little bit about yourself, your history, and about how you got to where you are now. Well, I am one of those people that seems to have been born loving liberty. I can't remember a time when I wanted to be ruled by uh, politicians and bureaucrats. I despise the state. I consider it a satanic institution under the direct control of hell. It is opposed to all things decent. It's opposed to Christianity, and I am a devout believer in the Lord Jesus, so I am automatically opposed to anything to do with government and the state. Um, it seems like a lot of the stuff that I have studied has only reinforced that uh, inherent nature. Um, I majored in Greek and Latin in college, so I was able to read a lot of the authors that the Founding Fathers read, and I was able to read it in the original. Um, then I began studying the Founders. When I graduated from college, I had more free time, and that led me to write my first novel, Hailstorm. It's available on Amazon. If you just Google my name, Becky Akers, A-K-E-R-S, and Hailstorm, uh, the book will pop up. Didn't realize when I gave it the title, there's apparently some grunge rock group that's also called Hailstorm. So I have to put my name in there as well. Um, and <laughs> what I did in that was simply fictionalize the life of Nathan Hale. I was astonished that nobody had ever written an adult novel about this guy because he's just so intensely exciting and his stories are incredibly dramatic and gripping. All kinds of kids' stories about him, but there's never been an adult novel before. And I spent a few years looking for one because I wanted to read it and finally decided, okay, if I want to read it, I'm going to have to write it first. And that's what I did. So uh, that led me into my second novel, Abducting Arnold. And that concerns Benedict Arnold. He's been in a lot of the headlines lately since everyone is comparing Ed Snowden to him. Um, I found as I began researching Arnold that all of the standard descriptions of Arnold as, you know, the world's most heinous traitor were false. I found out that there's a whole other story to Arnold that no one had ever written about before. No historian has ever touched this. 
Uh, I chose to make it into a novel because it's incredibly dramatic, and I wanted to have full play for that, uh, as opposed to writing a nonfiction history. But um, basically, Benedict Arnold was a true libertarian. He really hated the state as well. He wanted to overthrow the British Empire and have a free country here in America. But, of course, when you're overthrowing one government, a lot of people want to step into the breach and they decide they want to rule instead of the government that was there. There were a group of patriots that were exactly of that type. They were known as radical patriots, and they collided with Benedict Arnold. He tried hard to thwart them as they hoped to seize the revolution and use it for their own purposes to put themselves in the place of the King of England here in America. Uh, When he could not prevail against them, when he found Congress siding with them because they had infiltrated Congress, he then turned to the British government as the only entity strong enough and willing enough to squash the radical patriots. From that, the radicals turned him into a huge traitor to America when he wasn't. He was actually the true American. So there are an awful lot of parallels with Ed Snowden. Uh, I go into all this in the book, in the novel, and I urge you to look for that on Amazon as well. It's quite an exciting story because Arnold's story is so incredibly uh, intense and dramatic. Well, I thought you did a great job with both the books, but you brought up a great point, I think, in when you mentioned that you were looking for material on Arnold, and you can actually you can actually use that same uh, sentence for almost any subject uh, in the American Revolutionary War. If you start looking for books on it, there's very few books that are actually uh, that actually have any information that is not simply uh, regurgitated stuff. Uh, of previous authors, or uh, or just a, a quick overview. There's very little information about a lot of the major subjects. And you, when you were talking about uh, Nathan Hale, you know there was uh, there was at the beginning of the American Revolutionary War, we had we had quite a few groups uh, whose duty it was to gather intelligence. And in fact, uh, once the the Revolutionary War had started in the city of Boston. There were so many that uh, that the British officers felt that the only way that they could get any type of secure conversations was to walk to the end of the uh, uh, the pier in Boston Harbor, so that they would be free of uh, of anyone spying on them or listening to them. But none of that is ever written about or talked about. You have to really dig to start finding information on that. Poor Mr. Hale, he, while, a, while a, a wonderful patriot was horribly suited for the mission that he was given, and uh, while he was more than willing to, to conduct that mission, he simply didn't have, he didn't have the skills to conduct that mission. I think he was just too, he was too much of a, uh, too much of a good guy to do the job well, you needed to be uh, you needed to be a lot less of a good guy than what he was. And uh, you're you're raising an interesting point. A lot of historians um, are horrified at the choice 
of Nathan Hale to spy, there were a number of reasons for this. First of all, he was incredibly good-looking. Uh, virtually everybody who knew Nathan Hale goes on at some length about how handsome he was, whether they're men or women. They all mention really, really eye candy here. Um, secondly, he had a distinguishing scar. He had, uh, at some point in his life, we're not sure when, had suffered an accident with his musket and had powder uh, blown up into his face, and he was scarred from that. So he was not only really good-looking, but he had a distinguishing mark. Basically, he saw he was also rather tall, uh, about six feet tall. So basically, if you saw this guy, you remembered him. Historians always make that point. You know, Washington didn't know what he was doing because you know he sent Hale, this memorable-looking man, behind enemy lines, and everybody who saw him would remember the spy. Um, but the fact is that spying in the American Revolution was incredibly dishonorable. Remember, this is well before James Bond made spying something cool and, you know, you're a debonair spy. Uh, during the American Revolution, spies were abhorred the way that we look on child molesters, okay? You were a liar. If you were a spy, you cozied up to people so that they would trust you and tell you things, and then you betrayed them. A gentleman in the 18th century would never even think of doing anything like that. It was a real uh, insult to anyone's honor to even suggest that he would be a spy, the same way that we would say, well, what do you do, molest children at home at night? I mean, that's just such a deadly insult. Spying was considered the same thing then. So when Washington requested a spy to go behind British lines. This is in 1776 in September. The Continental Army, Washington's men, have just suffered a terrible defeat in the Battle of Brooklyn on Long Island. Terrible defeat. The, the, the revolution is hanging by a thread at this point. What's happening now is the British Army, which has just trounced the Continental, is, is waiting to cross from Brooklyn into Manhattan Island, into New York City. Uh, the Continental Army is pretty much headquartered there. Washington and all his men are going to be bagged because the British Army is not only waiting to cross onto Manhattan Island, but the British Navy, the world's best, the world's most impressive, the most forceful, the British Navy owns all the water around Manhattan Island. So the Continental Army's goose is cooked. The only thing Washington, Washington can do to prolong the war a few more weeks is find out where the British Army plans to make its beachhead, and he can then assemble his army there and hopefully fight. That's why he asks for a volunteer to go behind British lines and spy. Do this dishonorable thing for me so that we can defend ourselves and we know where they're going to land. He had one and only one volunteer. No one else would agree to do it because from their perspective, the war was pretty much finished. The rebellion was going to die. Why stain your honor going behind the lines and spying for a dead yeah, cause? Yeah, and not, not just your honor. Like you mentioned, the spying was so reviled that very few spies ever received a trial. Uh, when you're caught as a spy, and if there was even the remotest amount of uh, of evidence uh, to corroborate the fact that you were a spy, uh, in most cases, they were immediately executed, and uh, sometimes in, in very horrible or vile fashions. So That's correct, and Nathan was, Hale was no different. He, he was no, they, they knew that... Uh, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say he was captured on a Saturday evening, September 21st, and by 11 o'clock, September 22nd, Sunday morning, despite it being the Lord's Day, at 11 o'clock uh, in the morning, he was hanged by the neck until dead, uh, um, you know, with, with uh, every opprobrium that the British Army could heap on him. He is a traitor to our country. We are hanging him. Let him be a lesson. Uh, there's documentary evidence that says he was not even buried. He, his body was left hanging as a warning to anyone else who wanted to side with the rebels uh, in their defeat. So uh, you're, you're absolutely right about that. It was, it was uh, you know, you, you weren't even considered worthy of a trial if you were taken as a spy. They would hang you. They would uh, cut your head off. They would put it on a spike. Uh, and and as you said, the, the spies weren't just reviled by the enemy. Uh, if you were spying, as you said, it would be like, uh, it would be as if they had committed some heinous uh, act like child molestation. And not even your own side is going to say, uh, you know, poor guy. So they're, they're more likely to say, you know, he got what he deserved. And, That's right. After and for, the war, for many yeah. years, yeah, for many years, uh, we hear Nathan Hale and we think of Hero. But number one, nobody knew about him for a long time. And, uh, and he wasn't... Uh, it, it, nothing good was said about him for for many many years. That's one reason he has always been my hero. I I first learned about Nathan when I was a very small child, I was probably five or six years old, and I was absolutely blown away. Uh, but it, of course, it wasn't until I became an adult and I was researching my novel that I discovered just what his heroism meant. You know, you can any of us can picture ourselves in his situation today. Let's say that a revolution against the tyrannical federal government breaks out and one of us is captured behind government lines and we are surrounded by hostile enemy soldiers who are waiting for us to die. Absolutely no hope that what we say, what we do is going to make it back to our own lines. We're in a dark alley with a handful of enemy soldiers around us and then they've got their rifles pointed at us and that's it, you're going to die in a few moments. What do you do in that situation? Nathan Hale didn't let any of that sway him for a moment. Uh, in fact, what he did was he, he was ready to die. He preached the Redcoats a sermon, okay, because he had been to Yale Divinity School. Uh, it was a, or actually it was known as Yale College, but that was the point of Yale College. Anybody in the school was preparing for the ministry. Nathan had graduated from Yale with honors. He preached a sermon to the Redcoats because, of course, Americans were devout Christians and the Redcoats were by and large godless. And even though they gave lip service to the deity, they would steal, they would plunder, they would murder. So he, he preached them a sermon warning them, be ready at any time for any form in which death may appear. You will stand before your maker and you'll give an account of what you're doing here in these colonies. And then he said words to the effect of, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Now, that's not the exact quote. We don't know exactly what he said. That's the way it has come down. Uh, those were in the memoirs of a friend of his who was not present, heard the story secondhand, but those were in the memoirs the friend wrote 50 years later. Um, it, interestingly, the friend was a Federalist, 
Uh, he, I'm sure, played with the quote to make it much more nationalistic sounding than it really was. Nathan would not have used the, the idea of my country to mean America. That's an anachronism. He probably said something much more along the lines of, I regret that I have only one life to give for, liberty. Because liberty right. was the reigning value of the American Revolution. Right, and the only reason that we know uh, as much as we did was some of his friends but also because his demeanor and the way he handled himself uh, during the process of the execution uh, created such an impression on uh, on one of the British That's officers right. witnessing it that he wrote he he recorded his thoughts on this and he said that uh, that uh, Captain Hale had met his death with uh, the greatest amount of honor and dignity. Yes, which you know again coming from an enemy, coming about a a damned spy. That, that's just remarkable. And, you know, one more time, let me emphasize, Nathan had absolutely no idea that anything about his death would be reported to the sympathetic patriots. He had absolutely no assurance, and it's actually due to a big fluke that we know anything about it. It just happened that a few hours after his death, that officer, uh, Captain Montressor, went to American lines on another matter entirely. And when he passed into American lines under a flag of truce, he happened to meet with the Federalist I mentioned, William Hull, who had been Nathan's great buddy at Yale and would go on to an illustrious career with the Army. Uh, William Hull noticed that the British officer was very upset, and he asked him why, and I'm sure was devastated when he found out the reason was because he had just seen his buddy die. Uh, but because of that fluke, I firmly believe that the Almighty Lord arranged that to, to give a real shot in the arm because that's the effect it had. Gave a real shot in the arm to the patriots, let them know, okay, even though you think the rebellion's over, it isn't yet. And look at the way this young man has given everything for the cause of freedom. Okay, but uh, because of that coincidence that a man who had just watched Nathan die met up with one of Nathan's good buddies, we know the story of Nathan Hale. It went forth from Hull into throughout the Continental Army. Everybody soon heard about it. There were tavern songs that were written. Nathan was toasted and faded anywhere that uh, patriots were meeting and, and uh, taking courage from each other, taking courage from his incredible example. Uh, we have ballads that were written at the end of 1776. Now remember, after the Battle of Brooklyn, as the, the Redcoats then do make their landing on Manhattan Island, and basically they chase Washington and the Continental Army up off Manhattan Island onto the mainland. It's just a chase all that fall and winter with how General Howe, the British Army, attempting to mop up and finish the Continental Army. Through all of that, Nathan Hale's example continued to inspire and motivate patriots because they were horrified at the idea that he'd been executed without a trial, that, that you know, this, this fine young man had lost his life to the brutal government. That's the way it was seen. Um, so, you know, it's just incredible to watch the effect of Nathan Hale's story on the Continental Army. And again, had no idea that that would ever happen. So just the integrity right. of this young man and, and his devotion to freedom, no matter what, uh, it just is endlessly inspiring. Right. Whenever, whenever you, uh, whenever it is uh, uh, depicted uh, in, in modern times, 
normally there's uh, there's hail standing on some cart or some uh, deck, uh, you know, on some hanging platform, and uh, and he's nobly uh, speaking to the crowd, uh, and he delivers his lines. But in reality, there was no crowd. There was there was nothing noble about it. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, it was done in a dark, dirty fashion, and uh, that was the end of it. And and he had no way of knowing that anything he said, uh, what the words he said, had to be solely for himself, and uh, and for the the British officers uh, witnessing the execution. Because, uh, like you said, there's no way of knowing that anything uh, was ever going to to make it out of that situation. Even the knowledge of his death, he he may he may well have figured that they weren't even going to release the fact that they killed him because that that's not something that they would normally do. They say we killed a spy named so and so. They would just kill the person and uh, and be done with it. You know, there's you know, a another, a new. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say another really poignant aspect of this is that Nathan was just 21 years old. Um, you know, I know people even in their you know 60s, 70s, 80s. It doesn't seem to matter how old someone is. None of us want to face death. All of us will fight for the very last moment of life. Um, I've had grandparents uh, on both sides. My grandparents live into their 90s and 100s. So um, I, I've seen a lot of elderly people, and I know how how desperately people, even in the last stages of life, will cling to that last breath. Here's Nathan Hale, 21 years old, heroically, willingly giving his life for freedom. I mean, it, it's just the sort of thing... I, I can't think of too many other examples like that in all of history. And he, he's just an amazing man. I tried to portray all this in my novel. And, uh, and again, it's Hailstorm on Amazon. Just Google Hailstorm and my name, Becky Akers, and it should pop up. Yeah, and listen, guys, you can you can grab both of these books right this second with just a click of a button. You can head on over to, uh, to Amazon and uh, either look up Hailstorm or Abducting Arnold. And then right below that, they'll give you uh, a list of uh, of the other book, whichever one you Google, whichever one you look for, they'll be the other one is right below it. And you can buy, you can purchase uh, the the actual physical book, or you can within minutes you could be reading this on Kindle. Either way, uh, personally, I I have to have the book in my hand, or it or it's just not a book; it's something else. <laughs> But, uh, I agree with you entirely on that one, by the way. <laughs> I sit in front of a screen all day. I want a book in my hands at night. <laughs> right. I like to turn everything else off, one small reading light on my uh, on my nightstand, and and that's the way that the book goes. Well, as we're, as we're discussing this, uh, I've done a great deal of research over the years looking for looking at, at how things happen, why they happen. How did how did Washington know this? How did why did he make the decisions that he did? And if you search long enough and hard enough, you'll find you'll find little bits, little little bits of data uh here and there and uh you'll find the beginnings of of the intelligence gathering through spies uh country that was actually, uh, at least in the beginning, handled by George Washington himself. He was creating his own spy network 
And he was actually running a majority of the spies himself, personally running them. And uh, I just thought it was very interesting, the, the way that that ran. And for you guys that, uh, that would like more on this, in a historical fiction fashion, uh, there's a series out now. I don't remember who, who's doing it, if it's AMC or who, but uh, there's a series out now that's called Turn, T-Y. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I have not seen that. I don't watch TV, don't even own a cassette. Um, but, and I was very interested, Mr. Adam, as you're talking about Washington running his own spies. I have seen a lot of apologists for the current surveillance state try to justify it with that yeah. argument. Yeah, uh, you exactly. Know, well, spying goes back to our earliest times. And in fact, I've read different things, very laudatory about this series turn. And again, I've not seen it. I don't know anything about it except what I've read. Statements from the NSA lauding turn. Oh, it's so factual. And you know, it, it shows how spying, it's in our roots. It goes back to our earliest history. And I want to categorically deny all of that. These people are sinking lower than a worm's belly to try to portray their overturning of the Constitution. They're absolutely... What what they're doing is noble. Oh, they they aren't worthy to, to lick Washington's boot. And they are standing there trying to implicate that fine gentleman, that patriot, that lover of freedom, trying to implicate him in their own crimes and comparing their spying on everyone on the planet 24-7, every email we send, every phone call we make, every purchase we buy, in the immortal Ed Snowden's words, they're spying on all of that. And they're trying to make us believe that George Washington, who spied out of necessity to save his army from annihilation and spied only on the British Army's plans, that was it. He was not spying on Congress. He was not spying on his fellow citizens. He was not spying on his friends and family. He was not spying on people in England. They try to equate their crimes with Washington's very, very limited during war on the enemy espionage. I categorically reject all all of that. Oh, yeah. Well, the I don't know how... Uh... I don't know exactly where the uh, how much they're sticking to what they know. Personally, I haven't, and I've done a lot of reading. I haven't read anything that that really corroborates anything in the film and in, in the movie and or the series. And and I could care less if they are or they aren't. But I understand what you're saying. But I still think it's a good. Uh, it is a a fairly accurate portrayal of the dangers involved, the risks that the folks took. Spying wasn't a, uh, it wasn't an easy thing. It was a dangerous thing. It was an ugly thing. And and for many years, our government uh, tried to cover up and deny that there was any type of spying or intelligence gathering going on at all. Uh, they didn't want to, they didn't, they didn't want anything known. Uh, but, but we were doing it, and uh, yes, to the world. <laughs> and, yeah, and then uh, and then one last thing I'd like to I'd like to talk real quick about Arnold too before we move on. And the folks that listen to the radio show know that 
that I've done, uh, I've done quite a bit on Arnold because before Arnold made his mistake, and uh, and I've discussed uh, with the folks why I, my thoughts on how and why it happened. Uh, before that happened, there was no equal to uh, to Arnold's skills. He was the most skilled general that we had. Uh, the most skilled, the most uh, the most fervent defender of the of the nation, and I still think some of the some of his exploits are uh, are just unbelievable. The way that uh, the way that he he led first uh, because he was ready to go to battle, and Washington didn't know what to do with him, and was uh, was worried about keeping him. Uh, keeping around during the siege of Boston and stuff like that, uh, he ends up going on a mission uh, to secure Canada. And he came within inches of uh, of capturing Canada uh, for the colonies. But even then, even after he was wounded and had to make a withdrawal, he made a fighting withdrawal back. They stopped and uh, and Arnold built a whole navy right there, uh, right there on the lakes, uh, so in that the he could fight the Not near any shipyard. Yeah. <laughs> no shipyard. He, they got the guys. They cut down the trees. Now they 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 didn't do a perfect job because they were using unseasoned uh, uh, timber, unseasoned wood, which just meant it was green. It already had water in it. You know the ships depend on using seasoned lumber. They fit it tight. Then when water hits it, it expands. And when it expands, it seals off any gaps uh, that are there because when it expands. Well, the the green lumber isn't so great at doing that. So he built a, a really large, leaky navy, fought the the uh, the British navy that was there, not to a, not to a complete stop, uh, because he got kind of pretty much soundly uh, trounced by their... Well, they're a much larger navy. But what he did is he made them stop. They were getting ready to continue on with a thrust down into the uh, uh, into the colonies from Canada. But they had to stop because Arnold stopped and started building a navy. That meant that they had to stop and build one too. So he has everybody locked in place, uh, building this navy until the very end of the uh, of the summer and fall. They finally end up fighting the battle at the end of the fall, and that means that he has saved the colonies for another year. Once the weather sets in, they cannot continue on with their planned battle to strike down into the heart of the colonies. It's actually split uh, the northern and, and, and eastern colonies off. And it was just uh, both, both pieces of work. The, the attack up north into Canada, uh, if, you, if you will read about this, you will find out what an amazing, what an amazing effort this took to to go up through the wilderness. And remember, there's no highways. There's no. There's not even. There's not even uh, wagon trails. Nothing. They had to drag everything that they took with them up a river, and uh, this is up a river up in the uh, up in the northeast. Uh, where every uh, every mile or two miles, you had to take everything out of the river, take it apart, pack it up on your back, carry it up above the uh, the waterfalls, 
and then put it back in the water, put it back together, put the ropes back on it, and then drag it up the river in the cold, uh, in the cold, rainy, uh, starting to freeze and snow weather. Uh, and then he was wounded uh, in the battle there in Canada, and uh, and then fought the uh, uh, a fighting retreat. And this uh, and this continues on with the uh, with his uh, leadership uh, in many battles afterwards, and uh, I, I believe that Arnold was, uh, in, in addition to what you're saying, I believe that he also uh, felt that that he had given a lot in the service of the nation, and I don't feel I I feel that. He believed that he was not recognized for what he was doing, especially when, uh, when his leadership uh, caused the uh, the uh, the winning of uh, several battles, and he had that those victories stolen from him by more corrupt uh, leaders. I think that he felt that uh, that he was being given the short end of the stick, along with the fact that that. All through this, there's there are subplots and uh, pushes for power all up and down the line, and uh, the things that uh, that that Arnold is an amazing person to read about, and uh, and I would uh, advise you guys to grab uh, uh, Miss Aker's book, uh, Abducting Arnold. And at the same time, or while you're waiting for it to come in the mail, uh, you can do uh, a lot of uh, a lot of reading online, or you can go to your library, read about the Battle of uh, Valkyrie Island and uh, and Saratoga, and uh, and read about uh, what really what an amazing uh, leader he was. Now, of course, uh, you make that one wrong turn and. Uh, and the only thing they'll ever remember about you is that you were a traitor. And that's it. That's going to be the end of the line. Matter of fact, Arnold's name became synonymous with uh, with betrayal and uh, and treachery. That's a very literal statement. In fact, if you look up uh, traitor in the thesaurus, you'll find Judas Iscariot and Benedict Arnold listed as synonyms. So that... Uh, um, I was very intrigued with Arnold when I began my research. I, I had the novel already envisioned, and I was going to follow the standard story of Arnold, you know, vile traitor. He betrayed everything Nathan Hale had died for. I really hated him. Didn't know that much about him, but, you know, I'd been raised in American public schools, and I'd heard the standard story on him. Within just a couple of months of my research, my opinion on Arnold had changed entirely. Because when you start investigating his story, you find out that most of what we know about him just isn't true. For instance, one of the big motives that's always attributed to him for having become a traitor is that he made a ton of money. Almost every historian will tell you this, that he he bargained with the British and he made tens of thousands of pounds and blah, 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 and he he was the only general in the war who retired more wealthier than when he'd entered it. This is false. Yeah. Arnold actually lost. Completely false. 
it's completely false. He lost money, and I went through and documented uh, as much as we can. Of course, we don't know every last transaction, but as much as I could, I documented exactly how much he uh, uh, was paid by the British versus the losses that he incurred. For instance, he had two different homes both of them in the colonies, and he one was in Philadelphia, one was in Connecticut. He had to abandon both of them. Uh, what he got from the British didn't cover these losses, and he knew ahead of time it wouldn't. So his, he, he didn't do it for money. That, that knocks down a great big, huge argument for the Arnold was a traitor and vile and dirty and filthy camp. Uh, he, he didn't make money from it. Uh, the next thing that a lot of people uh, attribute to him is what you were talking about, Mr. Adam, that he was very insulted and slighted by congressional treatment and that he felt he had earned more than earned praise and gratitude from his countrymen and it was in very short supply. That's all true, actually. He had. He, he was an amazing strategist. Uh, if you if you have even a passing knowledge of military history and military strategy, if you start reading about Arnold's battles, you will be absolutely blown away at how brilliant this guy was. So he achieved an awful lot. If, if Benedict Arnold had not been in the war for the first three or four years, we would not exist as a nation. He, it's that crucial the victories that he won for the United States. Uh, just his work at Valcor Island alone, as, as you so eloquently uh, explained it, uh, is enough to assure him a place in the pantheon of American heroes. But uh, he never did receive the gratitude and recognition that he should have for any of that. There were always a lot of um, uh, enemies who were very jealous of him. There were other generals that didn't like to be on the battlefield nearly as much as Benedict Arnold did, but they wanted to claim all of the uh, laurels of victory when somebody else, namely Arnold, had won it. So he was constantly fighting that. There was an awful lot of infighting everywhere he went, uh, people trying to hold him back. There were, you, you, we always, you know, in hindsight, we think that the colonies reacted against British, the British government with a united voice. They didn't. There were various camps in Congress and, and various factions all over the colonies. Some people wanted to, to separate and become independent. Many people didn't. The factions that didn't want independence in both Congress and the general public did what they could to hold Arnold back instead of unleashing every talent he had against the British Empire. So for all of these reasons, Arnold was very seldom appreciated for the true genius he was. The problem you have drawing a link between that and why he returned to the British Empire is that Many generals faced this, okay? Washington was seldom in his, uh, you know, during the war. Uh, he was seldom given the appreciation he deserved. Um, and right. many generals did exactly what Arnold did. Arnold resigned his commission because he was so provoked at the way Congress was treating him, and they had promoted other generals over him. That was a standard tactic. Many generals did that. Many officers did that. That was how you reacted when Congress didn't recognize your contributions. You resigned and you went home. And it was actually a pretty convenient system because it saved Congress the necessity of firing you and saved you the humiliation of being fired. So Arnold did not react any differently than most other officers in the same situation. So we don't have that to rely on either. The more I researched, the more I realized that none of the usual arguments for why Arnold returned to British allegiance held water. The only thing that really explains it is his clash with the radical patriots. 
Nobody, no historian has ever written about this or ever given it even any any notice. So I'm the first one. My book is the only place you're going to find this, and I base this on original documents, on uh, the, the sources from that period, not from secondary sources and not from later historians' opinions of Arnold. I went back to the time, reconstructed it all, and you'll find it all in Abducting Arnold on Amazon. Well, you've got, uh, like I said, there's there's very little, actually very little, uh, at least, I'll say it this way, there's not nearly as much written uh, on the American Revolutionary War as as I had hoped there would be when I first started uh, going after it almost 10 years ago. For many, many years, I've always enjoyed history. I've always been a student of history. But for many years, my 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 quest uh, for historical uh, data kind of kind of uh, started slowing down uh, after the American Civil War, and and started really going slow uh, after the War of 1812. And I thought that, uh, and I, it it pains me to admit this, but I thought that the American Revolutionary War was, you know, it was a dull, uh, dreary, dusty thing, and uh, guys in frilly shirts and pantyhose and, you know, uh, and a cup of tea and buy your leave and, and all of that stuff, and I just, I really didn't want to mess around in it very much, but once I began digging... I was truly amazed at uh, at the at the heroes, at the people at the center of this, uh, at the amount of uh, of excitement and romance, and it's it's it has everything there. I mean, it has everything you would ever want uh, as a student of history there, but so little is written about it. Uh, I have to, and of, and of course, I've probably bored the heck out of uh, a lot of the listeners by reading a lot of the, the only way to really get a good idea of how things work is to go straight to the horse's mouth rather than try and, and tell folks what somebody else has written about what they think it happened. Or And uh, one of the books that I read quite a bit is called uh, The Spirit of 76, and it's just a, it's a large volume filled with the letters, the actual letters written in the begin in the birth of our nation, and that's really the the best way to find out what was going on and who who knew what, who thought what, and what they did, because it uh, has all of the correspondence uh, between the uh, the colonial uh, folks and the British folks. It has all of the the letters. I, I say all. There's certainly is not all of them, but it has a great deal of the correspondence. Uh, that is written describing battles uh, and uh, and the stuff that went on, but th- that's one of the only one of the only really good ways for you to find out what has gone on is to actually read what they wrote, not somebody else's uh, uh, idea of it, but to read what they actually wrote to each other. And of course, some of it is uh, uh, because you're reading. What uh, what a certain individual actually thought, and this individual did not have the benefit of any type of mass media or, or anything else. He only knew what was going on, 
local to him at that time. Uh, I wonder if he wrote a letter or something like that. But nonetheless, it's it's a very uh, it's a very interesting uh, story. One of the things that always always comes across in any of these original documents from the period is the widespread reverence for freedom, for liberty. Uh, one of Nathan Hale's friends in college wrote him, liberty is our reigning topic. And it's a very typical quote. Uh, you can pick up almost any diary, journal, or a series of correspondence from that time and find both people in England and people here in the colonies uh, talking about freedom, talking about the, the right of every human being to be free, uh, that the, the mass of men were not born with saddles on their backs to be ridden by those with spurs, by the rulers. Um, you, liberty at that time in both England and the colonies was as revered as democracy is today. And people were willing to give their lives. You know, the, the slogan about liberty or death, that was not taken lightly. That was a serious uh, way of thinking for many Americans. Now, there were a large category of Americans, as I mentioned, that thought the best way to secure freedom was to remain part of the British Empire. Because after all, if the British Empire withdraws and is no longer protecting the colonies, that opens the way for its chief rival, France, Catholic France, to make it even worse, Catholic France, to come in and tyrannize the colonies. Um, Protestant Americans looked on Catholic France the way modern Americans look on Islam. Okay, It was a terrible thing. It was a, a tyrannical religion. And to allow its priests and ministers entrance into, into America would mean that Americans would be subject to the same sort of vast that Frenchmen were in the 18th century. So uh, liberty just motivated everyone, uh, even people in England. We, we tend to think of England as, uh, you know, being against the American colonies, and that's not the way it was at all. The British government was uh, interested in retaining control of the colonies, but many people in England uh, uh, hated what their government was doing to Americans. Uh, there, were, there were widespread riots in London and other cities against the war. There were a great many British people that felt the uh, government should not be making war on their literal brothers and nephews and nieces and grandchildren and, and sometimes even spouses in America. So uh, liberty was the, the be-all and end-all of political life in the 18th century. That was the only point of government was to protect freedom. Anything else that did beyond that was considered to be tyrannical. Right, and you made a great point a while ago when you were talking about uh, <clears throat> about the actual uh, makeup uh, of the folks involved in the American Revolutionary War. And the fact is that uh, despite what, uh, what you may see depicted in movies and stuff like that, or, or some of the stuff you may may read about the uh, support for the war. But it was, in fact, not uh, not uh, supported uh, by anywhere near 100% of the population. There was, uh, to remain, uh, loyal subjects to the crown, uh, another third or so of the folks that, that didn't want really uh, anything to do with either side, 
Uh, they simply wanted to be able to maintain their lifestyle and uh, and live the way they wanted. And then you had another third that was in some way uh, involved with the uh, with the pro uh, revolutionary forces. That being said, there was all there was only a very small number of those who were actually involved in making it happen. You had you might have people who were actually who were in favor of it, but very few people actually did anything about it. And uh, and the actual push for independence. Uh, it was not started uh, at uh, Lexington or at uh, the North Bridge in Concord or along Battle Road. Uh, matter of fact, it really wasn't even openly discussed until almost a year later. And we have the uh, the flags that flew during the Siege of Boston. One of the flags that flew was called the Grand Union. And uh, that was the... Uh, that was the bars, the red and white bars, with the Union Jack up in the corner, the place where the stars are now. And what that symbolized was a a union between England and the colonies, where the colonies would remain subservient uh, to their to the crown, but but also retaining their rights to uh, to govern themselves until the actual uh, uh, Declaration of Independence came out, the majority of the folks were not asking for independence. They simply wanted the same rights and freedoms that had been granted to uh, individuals living in England under the English Constitution. And when they saw, uh, after a year of what the what the British troops were doing, uh, and they they received the word back, a reply... From all of their uh, all of their entreaties to to find peace, replied back from the king, uh, virtually telling them that he was going to crush them. Then independence became the only route that they could take, and uh, and once that once that cat was out of the bag, then that's all there was to it. It's very fascinating, Mr. M, because modern historians have made almost a fetish out of independence. And if you read secondary histories, which I don't recommend, again, I'd, I'd, if I were trying to learn about the American Revolution, I'd go back and do just what you said. I'd read the original sources from the participants and find out what they thought about it. But uh, um, independence was always considered just a means to an end, and the end was freedom. Uh, I really don't believe that the colonists cared one way or the other whether they were an independent country or whether they were part of the British Empire as long as they were free. They ruled themselves. As long as they were free of the empire's restrictions. Um, and I, I don't even know, remember that democracy in the 18th century is very, very frowned on. There was a popular saying at the time that people would rather have one uh, ruler 3,000 miles away than 3,000 rulers one mile away. Okay, in other words, democracy was very frowned on then. People didn't trust it. They realized that what it was was mob rule. And they realized that their freedoms, their freedoms for to assemble, their freedoms for speech, their freedom of religion, that all of those freedoms 
were inalienable. They were endowed by their creator. They're not up for a vote. If the majority decides that most people shouldn't be allowed to practice Islam or shouldn't be allowed to practice uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness uh, uh, beliefs or shouldn't be allowed to be Catholic, that doesn't mean anything. The majority can go ahead and think whatever they want, but that is an inalienable right endowed by our creator. It can't be suspended. Similarly, we can't suspend the right to protest government policies. That's been endowed on us by our creator. So all of these things are not up for a majority vote. The 18th century realized that, and that's why democracy was so very feared and nobody wanted democracy. They, they would have rebelled against it. John Adams, in fact, called democracy, a, a, or I'm sorry, Alexander Hamilton called democracy a poison and said that in a small yeah. country uh, like the United States at that time, you know, in the 18th century, or just the, the East Coast, uh, that democracy it couldn't be diluted. The poison would be too much for the country, and it wouldn't be able to dilute it in that small space. Uh, I think you'd be quite surprised to find out the large space doesn't dilute it either. But um, That's right. Uh, there, there That's was, right. There, there was no liking for democracy. It was very much feared. So... Um, it was really liberty that people were after, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm always dismayed at what a fetish independence has become for modern historians, and that's one reason why I counsel folks: if you, if you want to know about the American Revolution, don't read secondary historians because they have all turned it into something it never was. Uh, the only one, the only modern historian I would recommend, and even then I have some reservations, is Gordon Wood. Uh, other than Gordon Wood, though. Um, I would I would definitely get a copy of Spirits of 76, as Mr. Adam mentioned. Uh, it's edited by uh, Henry Cominger, and uh, I forget the other fellow. There's another book called Rebels and Redcoats, or Redcoats and Rebels, right. I always get confused. Um, but that also is a compendium of original sources. And then with the Internet today, my goodness, you can get all kinds of original sources. You can get Continental Congress journals. You can sit there and read the history of the war day by day. You can find out what the debates were, what was Congress worried about. Get, uh, you can easily access George Washington's uh, letters. He was a voluminous writer. We've, we've got letters from him from that cover all sorts of picky details, what the countersign is for the day and what the parole is and that sort of thing. It's just, you know, there's a wealth of information out there. You don't need a secondary historian to filter this stuff and take all the freedom out of it. And that's really my big beef with secondary histories. They don't emphasize the libertarian aspects of the war. Um, and there's a, a very good reason for that. Uh, the reason that the American Revolution isn't taught in public schools anymore or is just kind of lightly brushed over instead of being explored in depth. You don't want a public that is enslaved to understand how free it once was. You don't want it to understand the ideals of liberty that motivated a generation to go to war against an empire that was a millionth as tyrannical as ours. You don't want people to know about this, and so you don't emphasize it in the public schools, and the course historians that graduate with their degrees from state-sponsored schools and state-supported schools have bled all the life out of the American Revolution. They portray it as a Marxist rebellion. They portray it as uh, it was for independence. They portray it as it brought us democracy. They portray it as all the things it wasn't. 
and they leave aside all emphasis on liberty. That's again why I caution folks, don't trust historians, go back and read the actual participants. Right, and uh, I think there's always also some confusion when it's talked about, uh, especially by, uh, by a lot of folks currently, there's some confusion about the about freedom and liberty. I think that uh, I think that when people are talking about, uh, or when they when they when they're talking about uh, individual uh, freedoms and liberties and pushing for them, I think that I think that sometimes there's a little bit of a mix-up between what we have as uh, as really what should be our individual responsibilities and our our freedoms as a, as a community, and uh, I think sometimes they're re- that people reverse those, and that they're they want to talk about what they, as an individual, uh, should be free to do without uh, without any emphasis on what they, as an individual, have a responsibility to do. And uh, I just wish that uh, I wish that more folks would read this. I wish more folks would would take 10 minutes and read some of the documents that, that founded our nation. You know, I told you that I didn't study a lot of it uh, at first, and, but when I finally did, <clears throat> I was simply stunned by the brilliance of the minds that were that were leading the nation at that time uh, on 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 almost all sides. There's plenty of people that I thought were were brilliant. Their writing was brilliant. I didn't agree with them. I still don't. Nonetheless, I thought that some of their ideas were very brilliant, and. <clears throat> I think that if folks would take a few minutes to actually read the documents that uh, that the nation is built on, I think that a lot of this, uh, a lot of what we're experiencing, would go away if it was actually taught in schools. If it was, if it was taught in our in our school systems, in our universities. Uh, I think it would go a long way towards clearing up a lot of the mess that we're in. Because if you sit there and you read what the founders uh, of the nation wrote, it's not hard to figure out what they meant. It's not like they were, like if you read these documents, that they were uh, intentionally ambiguous or uh, it was it's very been very clear in most places. The only thing I the only places that I can see them being uh it's at times uh and the US was on the subject of religion and that's of course because uh, everybody thinks that there is uh, some mythical uh separation of church and state when in reality it wasn't that uh that the founders were trying to chop off or or freeze out any religion, there were, every colony was based on a religious charter. The problem was that if they didn't, if they didn't find some way uh, 
to make the peace between these warring uh, religious factions, and nobody was going to agree to anything. If any one of the, the factions thought that any other religion was going to be getting a, a foot up ahead of them, <clears throat> then it would have been war. But there was never anything that I could read, uh, any type of a push to eliminate uh, religion from the government. Everybody, everybody in the government uh, subscribed to some type of spirituality, and it may, it may not be uh, it may not be what you uh, what you read or hear today in uh, in a Southern Baptist convention or anything like that. But uh, all of the founders subscribed to some type of spirituality. There's a big myth abroad that um, that theism had overtaken the founding generation and that Washington was a deist and, and Jefferson and Franklin and Thomas Paine and basically all of them just thought that God started up the universe and walked away. Um, this is a huge myth because deism did not make inroads into America until the 1790s, well after the revolution has already concluded. Um, Washington was a very devout Christian. I have a book that I just love called Sacred Fire, and I have it here on my bookshelves. I will tell you in a moment how thick it is. Uh, it basically <laughs> just documents Washington's various references to the Lord and to his faith in God. Uh, it's two inches thick, and uh, I can tell you in a minute, too, how many pages it is. So when you hear this constant chorus that Washington was a deist and he didn't care about the Lord and he was, you know, to all intents and purposes an atheist, this is absolutely false. And Sacred Fire goes to about 1,180 pages with footnotes. So that 1,180 pages documenting Washington's belief in uh, love for Jesus Christ. Um, Thomas Paine was a deist later in his life. He didn't start out that way. Um, Jefferson also got sucked into that, but later on, well after the Revolution. So when you hear people denigrating the Christian heritage that founded this country, they're either ignorant or they are uh, deceptive. And either way, I wouldn't pay any attention to them. Well, let's take a... Uh, let's take a... A, a a a new right turn here, and uh, and I and during this discussion, I slipped into my uh, asbestos clothing. Uh, on September 11th, you no, know, 2001, we had uh, the attacks on World Trade Center, and that began uh, a tremendous change in our nation. Uh, it, it The amount of damage done by those attacks, uh, the, the collateral and peripheral damage was so much greater, I think, than the actual damage caused to the property and to the lives lost that, it, that it's unbelievable. The, I think that the, the attacks were extremely successful uh, uh, in, a, in an evil fashion, uh, not only because of what they did to the property and to the, the people that were killed or injured, but the damage, the resulting and residual damage done to our nation uh, by the folks supposedly interested in protecting us uh, within 
uh, within a year, the uh, 107th Congress got together, and on November 19, 2001, they established the TSA, uh, which required the completion of more than, than 30 major mandates uh, by the end of 2002. This was this is absolutely uh, one of the most it's the the largest uh, civilian uh, undertaking in the history of America, and that is the creation of the uh, Transportation uh, Security Act. Uh, the the fallout from this, it's in my opinion, is absolutely hideous. Uh, and I don't know if this is. Uh, I, I have a hard time. I try and I try and keep myself from from ascribing to any uh, any conspiracy theories, but I, I have to wonder if the damage being done by this act was planned out or if it was just another uh, example of government uh, gone bad. I know that you have spoken out on TSA regularly uh, ever since the creation uh, of TSA. I know that I I began reading your your articles in 2005, and I know that you've... uh, you kept the pressure on. Let's uh, let's talk about TSA uh, mm-hmm. and and what they are actually doing. Because a lot of people they see TSA and they say, "Oh, those are the guys at the airport that are doing you a favor by keeping you safe." What's your uh, what's your take on this? <laughs> well, first of all, let me say that I'm a big fan of. Uh, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And I don't think it's a conspiracy to realize that the official story of 9-11, that hijackers from Islamic and Arabic countries uh, commandeered jet aircraft and flew them into buildings uh, because they hate our freedoms. That's so hokey and so unbelievable. Um, I've read a lot of the uh, evidence that architects and engineers have put out about how the buildings could not possibly, uh, here in in New York City at the World Trade Center, the two buildings could not possibly have fallen the way the government says they did. And I have a lot of eyewitness accounts here. Uh, You know, uh, you can often bump into people that were either there or they saw it from a window or whatever. Uh, It didn't happen the way the government wants us to believe. So I think there was very definitely... A motive and uh, a lot of um, a profit for the people behind 9-11. Uh, what happened? They got a whole lot more power. TSA comes out of that. TSA, by the way, the legislation for the Transportation Security Administration had been in the work for oh, probably about a decade before 9-11. 9-11 was the opportunity for the government to roll it out. And why was there this push to federalize the transportation security workers? Um, because that way the unions got a whole lot more members. So Democrats in Congress had been pushing 
to nationalize the security apparatus at the nation's airports for about a decade. They finally got the chance. This is another reason that I just look on government as so satanic. Who else would exploit the murders after committing them of 3,000 people to push to get unions into the airports. But that, that's why when you go to the airport now, you're groped by a federal employee because the Democrats wanted to put through unionization, okay? Once the uh, Congress gets the TSA up and running, of course, the premise is that they're going to protect us. This is another huge myth. It's about as big a myth as that the American Revolution was fought for democracy. TSA does not protect anything. It can't even protect its own butt, as we've all seen many times. Um, TSA has never once in any airport anywhere in the world, because TSA has a presence overseas too, has never once caught or even come close to catching a terrorist, quote. Okay? What TSA excels at is groping little kids. They've had to quit that because the public outrage was so over the top. Uh, <laughs> harassing grandparents, uh, preying on survivors of cancer. I don't know why this is, but for some reason TSA is really fascinated with, uh, a, um, a st I'm never sure how it's pronounced, but the little bags that survivors of bladder cancer have to wear. If you're wearing one of those, stay away from an right. airport. Because just like the Nazis, the TSA will zero in on you. Uh, in fact, if you have any kind of physical disability, stay away from airports. TSA loves to harass and harangue anyone in a wheelchair, anyone facing their last months of life. It was a really tragic story of a woman, I think about a year ago, uh, she had on her bucket list to go to Hawaii, I believe it was, and TSA made sure that woman was, was pestered and humiliated from the moment she got into the airport until she finally got to her destination in Hawaii. It just broke my heart to read that. Um, you know, little kids that are traumatized by the TSA's cruelty uh, when they take their teddy bears away from them, all of this nonsense as though a grandmother or a six-year-old girl on her way to Disney World is going to blow up the plane unless TSA's goons grope these people. This is absolutely tyrannical, absolutely diabolical. It is straight from the pit of hell. No regime anywhere in world history has ever systematically sexually assaulted its general population at large, okay? And let's remember, too, TSA is not content with just groping passengers at the airport. It's been making noises ever since it was founded about getting out onto the highways, very well-publicized incidents a few years ago from Tennessee where TSA was out on the highways harassing truck drivers, trying to get them. Uh, in fact, TSA does have a program. Uh, it's kind of dormant now. It was active a few years ago, but it's still in existence uh, called First Observer. And that was an attempt to enlist drivers, professional drivers, whether with trucks or buses or equipment, whatever. Uh, also, they wanted to target utility workers, the guys that come around and read your meters, okay, trying to target all these people to rat us out, okay? If you're a truck driver and you're a member of the First Observer Club, you're supposed to report to TSA when you see something suspicious on the roads, okay? And this is all just patent nonsense and absolute tyranny. It's a pity TSA doesn't read the government's own publications. There's a very interesting one that the State Department releases every year. It's called Country Reports on Terrorism. And it's basically a census 
of terrorists worldwide. Now, of course, they don't, they're, they're too busy plotting to destroy our freedoms and blow us all up to fill out census reports. So what the country reports on terrorism is, is uh, different State Department's employees' best guesses about how many terrorists are active in Saudi Arabia, how many terrorists are active in Ethiopia, and how many are down in Costa Rica, and that sort of thing. I've gone through the country reports on terrorism for several years running now, and I've written and published various articles on the findings from country reports on terrorism. And here's the, the bottom line. There are less terrorists worldwide than there are bureaucrats at the Department of Homeland Security. Okay? We have more bureaucrats allegedly fighting terrorism at the Department of Homeland Security than there are terrorists. Here's what gets even more interesting. When you take out the terrorist quote, and let's always remember the definition of terrorist is another man's patriot. Okay? Let's remember that a lot of the terrorists who are active are simply trying to get American control of their country overthrown. Okay, they're tired of seeing their loved ones killed by American drones, and so they launch, quote, terror attacks the way George Washington and the Continental Army Empire. But leaving that aside, uh, what gets really interesting is when you start taking the patriots slash terrorists who are only interested in their own backyards and have absolutely no desire to do anything in America to American citizens in the continental United States, you take those folks out and you are left with maybe a couple thousand terrorists worldwide that have any designs on the U.S. And the country reports will, will tell you very, you know, right up front, uh, these terrorists in Costa Rica are only interested in Costa Rican sovereignty and they are only fighting in such and so valley in the Costa Rica mountains or whatever, okay, it goes through with the different countries and it tells you things like that. So by the time you're done, you have a couple hundred, maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand terrorists worldwide that pose any threat whatsoever to the homeland. And by the way, let's just always remember that homeland, which the politicians and bureaucrats are around now like it's, it's you know, their, their second language, let's remember that's taken straight from the Nazis, okay? Just like a lot of the terminology of the Bush administration came straight from the Nazis. It's been fascinating to me that Obama's administration doesn't use a lot of the terms as much as Bush's did. I don't know what the, the uh, identification was there. I don't know who was idiotic enough in the Bush administration to, to bring in all these terms they borrowed from the Nazis. But TSA is founded very much on Nazi parameters. That's also fascinating. You start looking at the way TSA is set up and you start looking at their policies, they mirror a lot of the stuff that Himmler and Hitler were doing in Nazi Germany. Okay, there's this same disregard for physical disability, this same contempt for the weak, this same preying on the young and the very old that the Nazis instituted. Uh, and as I mentioned, the same terminology in a lot of cases. I've been fascinated as I'm reading now about Nazi Germany and studying it the way I have the American Revolution. I've been fascinated to look at the Nazis' control of travel. I happen to be reading a book right now that's about the Nazi persecution of gypsies, okay? And one of the things the Nazis did was they brought in tremendous control. You had to have a permit 
if you were going to wander around the country and camp the way that gypsy caravans did. Okay, they basically outlawed that, and you had to have a permit to travel from city to city. Okay, so very, very draconian controls on travel. And of course, we all know about uh, uh, the Nazis making immigration and emigration almost impossible. Okay, I mean, fathom the evil of a government that would rather kill people than let them out of the country. Okay, that's what's going on with Nazi Germany, and that same control is what the TSA practices on formerly free American citizens. Well, the the chances of you being uh, killed by a terrorist, terrorist, yes, uh, or in America, you're being killed by your it, own government. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. the uh, the the chances of you being killed by a terrorist in America is about roughly the same as you being uh, struck by lightning. And that's uh, right. It's actually and you have a great deal, yeah, a great deal more chance of being killed by law enforcement. That's uh, right. Matter of fact, I believe that they they and I don't know the uh, the validity of some of these figures. But they're saying that you have a, a ten times greater chance of being killed by law enforcement than you do of being killed by a terrorist. Now we know, though, the reality is that we know that police have killed more American citizens. Uh, every year, than uh, than are being that have been killed in uh, Iraq during our time there. Uh, so we know that uh, the the actual amount of danger that you're facing is uh, is much greater uh, by our own government uh, than it is. Uh, of any of these people that are supposed to be stopping. And, and like you said, TSA has yet to stop any terrorists from doing anything. Uh, they t- they're they more than willing to take the credit for it, but the only people that have stopped any terrorists are average American citizens. These are the only people, all the way from 9-11 to today, the only people that have really done uh, any uh, actual acts of preventing have been regular American citizens. Now, I don't know what all they have found at these uh, TSA checkpoints uh, at the airports. I'm sure a great deal of it they're, they're not saying, but I know that a great deal they are saying because <clears throat> they have so little that they can actually use to, to toot their own horn that, uh, that any time that they do catch anything, they're, they're, they very quickly uh, try and get credit for it. Yes, but, that's right. I see articles all the time uh, in various uh, uh, newspapers around the country uh, about how TSA has found a gun at this airport, and at this checkpoint they found a knife. Let me say that there are absolutely no studies whatsoever that implicate either guns or knives in uh, increased danger at 30,000 feet. Okay, this is simply something that the government has put out for decades now, that you are safer disarmed at 30,000 feet than you are if you have guns. 
Um, but this is simply bureaucratic opinion. There, there are no studies showing this. In fact, if there were to be any studies done, I'm sure they'd come out the way that they have on the ground, where armed people are far safer, you have a more polite society when people are armed, and you have a, a decrease in crime, more guns, less crime. There's no reason that wouldn't also pertain at 3,000 feet. So when the TSA blows its horn about it's found this many guns, all of us should interpret that as, okay, what that means is we now have people who are totally disarmed that compose the passenger on any flight, okay? And yet TSA itself will tell you that passengers are one of its layers of defense, okay? Let me ask you how much defense any of us can put up when the TSA has robbed us of every weapon but our fingernails, okay? None of us are going to be able to stop a terrorist, and yet TSA on its own website will talk about how passengers are part of its layers of defense, okay? This is just absurd. The other thing that uh, rendering everyone defenseless does, of course, is make us very pliable for TSA. There have been numerous incidents where TSA will say that a suspicious note has been found in a seat pocket. There's a bomb on board or something like that. The flight then, when it lands at another airport, uh, you know, whether it's diverted from its original airport or whether it's uh, coming to land where it's supposed to, whatever, the TSA will treat that flight as though there actually is a bomb on board, okay? And what it'll do is it'll force the plane to land at some little used runway, and it'll evacuate every other flight from around there. Now, I want you to picture for a moment your child on board that flight. Nobody is allowed to get off the flight. It simply sits there for hours. Okay, while the TSA assembles a bomb squad and that sort of thing, imagine that you are meeting your child on that flight and you are in the airport. It's one thing to realize intellectually that the TSA lies about everything all the time and that it treats a stray note found in a seat pocket as a threat when all it is is a prank. Okay, it's another thing to think your child's life might be in danger and your child is being held on that plane until TSA allows the passengers to disembark. What can you do? Not one thing. You are completely at the TSA's mercy, and so is your child. Now imagine you yourself are on that flight with your child. Is there anything you can do? Absolutely not. You have to sit there because the TSA has taken away every last weapon from you. You are totally at their mercy. And let me say, after a decade almost of studying this satanic bureaucracy, I will tell you quite forcefully, the TSA has not one shred of mercy. TSA wants oh, no. its word to be obeyed no matter what. Any deviation from that will land you in the, the either in jail or on the do not fly list. So that's the end result of the TSAs depriving us of all weapons. We are completely at their mercy. Right, and these guys, uh, the, the whole idea of this, I thought, was just absolutely, absolutely bizarre. I mean, how, who in their right mind could ever think that federalizing anything is going to make it better? Because it doesn't. We have hundreds yes, of it examples never does, of how and of it course, destroys that's not it. The purpose. the purpose was to right. unionize the, the to unionize and give them give them control. As you mentioned, one of the first things uh, done in most countries that are headed toward 
some type of uh, uh, totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Yes, they. One of the very first things they do is restrict travel, and yes. uh, and that's what they're doing with the TSA. And uh, it was only uh, what eight, nine, nine, almost nine years, nine years ago that uh, that the uh, the TSA TSA folks were they were all called airport security screeners. Uh, and they had, uh, you know, they just, they had a white shirt, black pants. They, uh, you know, they looked like they were doing the job they were hired to do, which was screening the baggage and stuff. And in the middle of the night, uh, all at once, they switched the guys out. Uh, they gave them the, uh, uh, the redone, uh, uh, the, uh, the new uniforms, which look like the federal uh, law enforcement officer uniforms, even even with a metal law enforcement badge. Now, this, uh, and of course, this is done without them having a, a, even a shred of any type of law enforcement training, none. Uh, and it was very and, deliberate, too, and purposeful. And let me tell you, it incurred the wrath of a great many police departments nationwide because these, you know, obviously the design was, was to make them look like cops. Uh, TSA has no authority whatsoever to detain, uh, to arrest you. They can detain you, but they can't arrest you. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, that, yeah. You know, their authority yeah, you is very up much there in the line. You show up there in the line with a with a gun, a grenade, anything. They can't do anything to you. They can't arrest you. They have to no. detain you until law enforcement arrives, until the uh, actual police force folks arrive. Now, there actually was a pushback uh, uh, against this uh, recently because uh, uh, they uh, they instituted the, uh, or they they tried to revise some of the policy with the Strip Act, and uh, that was trying to pro- prohibit uh, the TSA uh, federal employees from using the title officer, which is what what you would say if you were actual law enforcement officer, because they, ha- they were using the term TSA officers and wearing, uh, uh, you know, their police uniform with a badge and everything else. And uh, they're trying to eliminate that with the Strip Act, but at the same time, uh, I guarantee you that TSA is pushing just as hard as they can in the other direction because TSA wants the power to make arrests. They want the power to to carry a gun, a badge, and make arrests. That's what they want. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, Mr. Adam, after the... um TSA agent that was killed out in Los Angeles, um, there was a huge push to get them armed. I don't think it went anywhere, but there were a great many people calling for arming them. Um, Something that fascinates me is that many people don't realize the fact that the feds have always, or or pretty much uh, always, controlled aviation security. Okay, 
So when, if, if you are one of those folks that subscribes to the official story of 9-11, that uh, hijackers were able to board the planes and they crashed them into to buildings, you should realize that they got past federal screeners, okay, because the situation that that was, the screeners were supplied by private personnel firms, and that's true. So when, when you hear about uh, how 9-11 replaced the private screeners, that's all they were. They were private in that they were supplied by personnel firms, but everything in the, and their paychecks came from those firms. But everything those screeners did, down to the stupid questions they used to ask, remember, did you pack your own bags and that kind of nonsense? Okay, every single thing they did came directly from the FAA. The FAA right. regulated minutely what went on at airport checkpoints. The FAA required those airport checkpoints. The FAA required airlines to pay a certain percentage into their coffers to support those checkpoints. Uh, the FAA was in charge of all of that and says so in so many words on its website. Okay, so they frankly acknowledge the FAA has sole authority for aviation security. Okay, so when you hear people say, well, you know, the private screeners failed on 9-11 and that's why we needed federal ones. No, you can't call the people who were in place at the checkpoints on 9-11 private screeners unless you think that a secretary who sends out the boss's letter wrote the letter. Okay, right. that's really what we're dealing with here. Right. Yeah, because you can't say that's exactly uh, that's a great analogy. Because the folks that uh, that failed, and number one, they didn't really fail. The the stuff that at the time that they used, the boxers and stuff like that, were not prohibited items. So you can't say that they failed. They actually they they actually were doing their jobs. Uh, and the fact that you call somebody uh, a federal employee or you make him a federal employee. It doesn't change. Uh, it doesn't change the the things that they're looking for, the way that they're going to look for it, or any of that. Uh, you would think that, uh, and of course it's true, that the private companies have a much greater interest in uh, preventing any uh, any damage than the federal government does, because their livelihoods depend on it, and. Uh, and certainly, if these guys, if the TSA folks were the were, and they're supposedly they're our last line of defense. But if that's true, why is it that uh, when you order a pizza in Washington D.C., uh, there is uh, there's a an ad on it for becoming a TSA employee, uh, or when you go to uh, the discount. Uh, 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 grocery stores or gas stations up there, and you find the little the little blurbs for people who are out of work that they want them to become these uh, these last line of defense TSA employees. Uh, I would think that if you were that interested in getting the absolute best person, you wouldn't be trying to do it to get them off of pizza boxes. <laughs> You know, it's also fascinating to watch people privatizing the TSA. Um, I know Rand Paul is big on this, and he, he beguiles a lot of well-meaning people into supporting this. But I, I want everyone to be aware of what's involved in calls to privatize TSA. 
TSA, in other words, will still be in control, okay? TSA will still be setting the policy. The only thing that will happen is we will go back to the private personnel firms that supply the actual goon at the checkpoint who is molesting you and your child, okay? But TSA will still be telling that guy, yeah, you want to you wanna run your hands up their legs until you meet resistance. That's official TSA policy, okay? You want to grope women on their chest, and you want to make Make sure that those are not bombs in that uh, clothing that she's wearing, okay? This is all official TSA policy that will continue to be enforced. The only difference will be in the privatization schemes that a private personnel firm will once again issue the actual paycheck. So I hear a lot of, of uh, people who are really disgusted with totalitarianism and really disgusted with the TSA in particular calling for privatization. I want to tell you you are falling into a trap the politicians have set for us. That is not what we're after. We need to abolish the TSA. We need to abolish any federal role in aviation or in transportation. That's where all of this comes from. As I mentioned, the FAA was in control of airports and aviation for decades before TSA came along. It was because of the FAA. If you buy the official story of how 9-11 happened, it was because of the FAA's negligence and lack of responsibility, lack of concern for its duties that those hijackers were able to board the planes and bring them down. Well, the other thing I think that people uh, don't realize is that uh, they think that TSA is just at the airport, but these thugs no, are are everywhere. And uh, even back in uh, uh, 2012, uh, they... Uh, they had spread out across the state of Tennessee and uh, began uh, making stops and checkpoints on the highways. I mean, they're That's they're already correct. every they're already at the train stations, the subways, any kind yes, of they, uh, they have, federal terminal. That's right. They've they've invaded Amtrak. They've tried to uh, they groped a bunch of people getting off a Greyhound station in Savannah after. They'd ridden the bus. Okay, so in other words, the bus pulled up for the people to leave the station. You know, they, they're arriving in Savannah, and TSA set up a checkpoint and began groping them as they got off the bus. Okay. Yeah. What are they? they what are they going to do? They're, they're exactly. at that point. Once you're off of it, you you're you revert back to a a regular citizen on the street. You don't have the power and, now to to do damage in a in a mass transportation situation. So you're now back into the... All TSA is ever interested in is flexing its muscle and showing us who's boss, and that's a perfect example. Um, TSA has been going to sporting events. And, in fact, the Department of Homeland Security has... Uh, enticed and uh, I don't want to say forced, that's too strong because the NFL and the other Major League Baseball and all of those people have cooperated with the DHS. It's, they've not, DHS has not had to force them, but cooperated as they've installed TSA-like security at various stadiums. 
Okay, that's all coming from DHS. What is the point? The point is to disarm us everywhere we go. The point is to condition Americans to being searched, to having rulers in our face all the time, to having thugs with power and badges telling us, you can't go here, you can't take this, you're on a list, you can't fly, you can't go to the game. That's what's behind all this, total control of every aspect of our lives. So, so you're absolutely right, Mr. And when you say they're trying, TSA is trying to get out of the airports, they are, in fact, out of the airports. They are unleashing yeah. themselves in more and more venues. Yeah, back in 2011, 2012, uh, they ran over almost 10,000 unannounced checkpoints uh, with, the, with the, what they now Viper. call Viper, yes. which is, mm-hmm. is the... Uh, 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 visible intermodal, visible intermodal prevention and response teams. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and they uh, they conducted almost ten thousand unannounced checkpoints. And uh, I don't know. I know that there was a lot of pushback uh, after the Tennessee episode, but that, I don't think that that stopped them. Uh, they're continuing to expand uh, their policy of making. Uh, uh, making uh, unannounced uh, checkpoints and uh, stopping people, asking for uh, for papers, or like you said, I think the, the most bizarre thing is the is the many instances where after people have left whatever method of mass transportation, they have stopped them and made them go through the groping, because like I said, once you once you've left the mass transportation device airplane, uh, train, anything like that, bus, once you've left it, then you're now just a citizen on the street. So, and I don't agree with it before you get into it, but let alone after you've gotten off whatever vehicle it is. And yet these people, especially at the airports, and I I very seldom ever fly anymore because because it makes my blood boil. Uh, they <laughs> they treat <laughs> they treat people they they're like uh, they're just they they're like thugs and yeah, there's nothing are. you can do about it. You open your mouth, you say a single thing that they don't like, and they're gonna drop the hammer on you. And uh, and you can uh, you can you can Google these uh, the instances of it. Uh, there are tons of uh, of postings online of folks. Uh, one of the worst ones I saw was the one where they kept the poor woman uh, who had already gotten permission uh, to take uh, uh, her breast milk to her baby, and uh, they tried to stop her. She showed them their own rules on it, which allowed her to do it, and uh, they got mad because they got thwarted, and they locked her in that little... Uh, in that little clear prison booth that they have there and uh, made her miss her plane, let her, left her there for an hour to make sure that she missed her plane. And th- that's just, that's a common thing that they did. They can they can jack with you. Uh, they can do anything that they want there in the airport. Uh, I saw somebody sent me a video uh, day before yesterday of them strip searching a little boy right there in the line. Take his clothes off and uh, and then then groped his underwear with the parents right there and 
And then there's the little boys. And he wasn't like he wasn't like an infant. He was like seven or eight. Uh, right there in public. And I told my wife, I said, I, I don't I don't know that I could control myself if uh if this was happening to one of our one of my daughters. I don't know that I couldn't control myself. And and I don't think that anybody should have to control their self uh when they see something like this going on. Uh this is just the sort of thing that 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 is going to cause people. And they 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 yell about uh, about uh, us making uh, making insurgents in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is the exact same thing that makes insurgents in this country is uh, mm-hmm. being treated like you're a terrorist already. Uh, it's this is a very dangerous game our government is playing. I think that they, I think that they feel so strongly that they have the power and then they they can bluff through this game that they're going to continue pushing it. I think they'll continue pushing it until they realize that they can't. Well, I don't think they'll ever realize that they can't bluff. I think something will just end up happening, and and that. Uh, that kind of takes us to another uh, another area that I'd like to talk about. Uh, I, I was reading some of the stuff that you had written the other day, and then I and I don't remember exactly how I happened upon it. If I had uh, <clears throat> if you had mentioned it, or if I'd gone through it just on a separate uh, on a separate uh, foray information gathering for a uh, there was a an article written the other day over on Sipsy Street and uh and I thought it was a very, very relevant article because they were talking, you know, you hear people talking about the Nazis in World War Two and uh and they say, Why didn't they do anything? You know, they they were and people say, Well they're all Nazis, they're all bad and that wasn't the case by any means. Now certainly there were all kinds of people in Germany, in pre-war Germany. And uh, just like there is in America today, we've got plenty of haters, we've got plenty of uh, of everything in this nation. So did they. Uh, but they also had a huge number of folks uh, that that considered themselves part of the, the, uh, uh, the Reichsbanner that... Uh, that were dedicated to to defending their nation, uh, not from outside, but from inside. Uh, they had the whole group that uh, uh, that they had put together a, a large group of folks, and they said, uh, if Hitler, on the day that Hitler uh, stages a military coup and takes over the nation, uh, we've got the people. We've got all all the people we need to defend this to defend the country and stop him from doing it and take apart his organization. And that was their plan. And they were ready to go. And they could, I think, I believe they could have very easily done it. Uh, they were going to defend their their nation in a way that it uh, in the way that they believed it should run. <laughs> the only problem was that was their only plan. Was if Hitler staged a coup, and he didn't. You know, we know looking back that he didn't. He used 
the legal means of taking power, and he didn't do it all at once. He did it slowly over a uh, over a length of time, so that it, there was never any button that they could push and say, "Okay, let's go, uh, let's do it, let's defend the country," because it didn't happen. Plan was organized around. So when it didn't happen that way, they didn't do anything. They 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 just sat there. And then uh, as Hitler became more and more powerful and managed to uh, uh, instigate a legal takeover of the country, they were still just sitting there waiting for the coup, which was never coming. And uh, then Hitler rounded up the leaders and uh, imprisoned or executed them or shipped them off. And that was it. This one day they, they ended up waking up and they were all Nazis. Everybody was. And... The the story behind the article, or the idea behind the article, was when when is it when is enough enough when is it when is it going to be time to do something about what's happening in the nation? Because if you if you just have that one plan, which is uh, and you hear this from uh, the majority of the Second Amendment. Uh, folks ready to defend the nation. If somebody tries to come and confiscate their firearms on a one-big-day thing, how are they going to resist? But if it doesn't happen like that, then where is their power? You know, if somebody right. if somebody loads up uh, tens of thousands of of uh, law enforcement and stuff, and they, they go out and start going knocking door-to-door and forcefully taking people's firearms, uh, you betcha uh, that, would be the, that would be the signal for everybody to begin resistance. But everybody knows that. The government knows that. Everybody knows it. They're not going to do that. So so when are, when is somebody going to do something about it? What At what point do you finally say, all right, that's, the line's been crossed and now we have to do something? Because, because we could end up the same way. We could wake up one day with all of our rights gone, not in one big beer hall push, but just uh, legalized away from us uh, a little bit at a time. I don't have an answer to that, but I will say that from my perspective, I'm in New York City, and as you're no doubt aware, that's the progressive capital. Um, It seems to me we are still at an educational stage. Most Americans have lost the knowledge of freedom most Americans, if, if the revolution happened tomorrow, I don't think most Americans would know what they're fighting for. Uh, it's, it's very scary to me to read a lot of comments online where people talk about a revolution because they want better health care. <laughs> and they're not happy with Obamacare. So we need a better one. We need a revolution to bring that about. Uh, you have a lot of people like that. You have so many Americans that they have absolutely no answer to the question who will build the roads? Okay, they really think that's a serious objection to having a smaller government. Well, who's going to build the roads if you take away the government's power? Okay, and they, they have absolutely no way of looking at the world aside from the answer to every problem, every question, the government. Who's going to, to purify our water? The government. Who's going to raise the soup? The government. Okay, that's all they think in terms of. So when people ask me the question you just did, I always tell them, 
I don't know that we're ready yet. I think we need, we have ahead of us a huge amount of educating, a huge number of people who still think that government is correct and that government is needed and government is necessary. And okay, you know, sometimes bureaucrats get out of control and we need better people in the bureaucracies and we need better people politically. You know, yeah, there are a lot of scandals. If we just had good men in office, then it would be okay. We need to educate our friends and families, everybody we know, to tell them why that's not true. It's not the men in office. It is the office itself. It is the idea that certain offices should have power over the rest of us. This is a diabolical idea. It's totally impractical. It is against human nature, and there is no way it's ever going to work. So when we say, well, what's going to be the catalyst, I would say be glad the revolution isn't here yet because we'd wake up, you know, in the history of the world, most revolutions have resulted in greater dictatorship. And if the revolution happened tomorrow, we'd wake up next week in concentration camps. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, we frequently uh, find myself in discussions with folks about things like uh, secession and revolution, stuff like that. <clears throat> Not that I'm in any part of any group advocating anything, but... Uh, I will say that I try and make them understand the the point that you made earlier when you were talking about the uh, the colonists talking about it is that uh, you got to be careful what you wish for as far as revolution or anything like that because uh, there is no pretty revolution. There is no... Uh, there, at least in the beginning, there's really not much good uh, that comes of it. It's uh, it is chaos and disaster and heartbreak and uh, and not only that, but you're rolling the dice uh, on what you're going to get in place of what you just threw out the window. Uh, it's a very very tricky situation. So you have to understand that if you start pushing for something like revolution is that uh, uh, you you may may get what you want and you may not. And uh, and it's a very uh, it's a very dangerous thing. I, I didn't lose you, Doc. No, no, I, I'm just uh, silently agreeing with you that uh, um, I just I don't see that the American people are ready for it yet. Um, you know, I think if we if we had a revolution, it would be a socialist revolution. It would be for even more communism than we already have, even more welfare, even more benefits. Um, you know, there's right. huge anger in the country right now against corporations, and that's great because corporations are in bed with the government. But the problem is that most people don't see that they're in bed with the government. They they close their eyes to that part, and it's just they want to blame the corporations and the profit motive, not the government that gives the corporations their power. So, like, you know, you just keep going back to that 
fact that most people have been so dumbed down by their years in public educational gulag and by the mainstream media, they can't reason things through anymore. And they, they truly think government is their friend. Until we get more Americans realizing government is the enemy, you know, we don't need to be afraid of terrorists. We need to be afraid of the politicians and bureaucrats. Those are our true enemies. Until we get more Americans thinking that way, I don't see much hope of a revolution for liberty. Well. Let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about another offshoot of that for just a minute, and that is the the fact that corporations and the government are in bed together, and let's talk about uh, let's talk about the the biggest. Uh, elephant in the room, uh, which is the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think that uh, I think that when you ask, if you ask anybody out on the street, uh, they would tell you that that is uh, that is a uh, what they believe to be like a licensed uh, federal entity that is part of our government that. Uh, uh, that is tasked with uh, making sure that uh, the government has money and uh, what to do with the money, uh, etc. Uh, that the, the Federal Reserve is is actually uh, is actually federal employees, and uh, I don't think that anybody really understands <clears throat> what the Federal Reserve does or who they are or why they were created. <clears throat> uh, and I know that. Uh, that you've been talking about this for a while, and uh, I listened to your speech from uh, from back in 2009, and uh, and the one of the things that stuck out most in my mind was at one point in the speech you said the government is consistent and it's evil, and that just that just really stuck in me uh, about how true that is. Uh, maybe you could. Uh, Maybe you could talk to the folks about uh, the Federal Reserve and what what they're doing and how they're doing it and how actually bizarre this agency is. Well, I think the Federal Reserve is an excellent example of what government's true purpose is, and that is to protect the wealthy and powerful and to accrue to them even more money and power. So all of the Americans wandering around thinking government is their friend and it's going to help them and it's going to feed them and clothe them, it will to a certain extent. But, of course, what it will do is keep you very poor uh, doing that. Um, you know, and you'll never attain any sort of wealth. You will just barely get by on welfare. Meanwhile, the people who are really pulling the strings with all the power and the money at the Fed just continue to get more powerful and more and and wealthier. So, the Fed's just an excellent illustration of exactly government's purpose. There's a big myth out there that government protects us, that it protects us from bad guys, whether they are terrorists or whether they're your average garden variety criminal. This is so to- totally untrue. Government is the bad guy. Government is the one impoverishing us for the sake of the guys controlling the Federal Reserve. Well, I know that... Uh... I'm always amazed at at, 
at the fact that the folks that that have their hands uh, on all the buttons and the dials and the controls uh, for the finances, uh, not in just this country, but and the reality is almost over the whole world, that these are not uh, any type of elected officials. They're, they're private individuals. It's a private uh, organization uh, that is that is hands-on uh, with the money, that, that is hands-on with with creating money out of thin air. And, uh, and really, uh, if you look at the events going on in the world right now, the most uh, dangerous events, uh, the situation in uh, uh, the Ukraine, the uh, the problems in the the Middle East, and uh, and the coming problems uh, with China, it's all connected to dollars. Who is going to control the money? Who is going to control uh, the money that we have? The stuff in and certainly in Russia, as far as I can tell, it doesn't really have anything to do with with anybody wanting independence or, or anything like that. If it did, then then why wouldn't we be? Uh, uh, well, it has a lot more to do, I believe, with the fact that uh, uh, that the Soviets and uh, several of the other uh, forces around the nation, um, around the uh, the world, uh, have begun to decide that they don't want to be stuck uh, tied to the dollar. Uh, they're starting to think about creating their own uh, international type of currency, and we're using uh, these these situations to pressure them and to keep them from doing that. And I don't know how much longer we, we're going to be able to do this because uh, we, uh, if you look at the things that we do to our allies, let alone our enemies, but the way that uh, we force our allies, supposedly our friends, uh, to buy worthless junk from us, and uh, no matter what the uh, uh, no matter what the return is going to be for their nation, how much trouble they're going to get into, how much destruction it's going to do. Uh, the the constant push for the dominance and control of the money in the world is behind almost everything that's going on right now. It always is. And, you know, again, that's government's chief purpose. Whatever the civics textbooks will tell you, whatever the high school teachers tell you, that uh, government is there to protect that's poor and the weak, that's that's not it at all. Government is there to empower the wealthy and the already powerful. So, um, and it kind of brings us back uh, uh, full circle to the American Revolution, which was a, an attempt by the uh, disenfranchised and the, the people, colonists that were considered to be second-class citizens who were uh, bound by mercantilist laws, whose, whose trade was being supervised and regulated by the British Empire, uh, uh, you know, for the benefit of wealthy manufacturers and for influential, powerful men in the empire. Um, those people launched a revolution. 
against this. And although they didn't have to contend with the Fed, they did have a lot of the same problems that we have uh, on a much lower scale. Uh, Tyranny then was not nearly as overweening as it is now. So um, perhaps that's what I can leave uh, your listeners with, Mr. Adam, is just that idea that the revolutionary generation stepped forward before things could get to to the place where the king's agents were groping women at stagecoach stops. Right. Well, I want to thank you again for uh, for taking the time out to uh, come and speak with us tonight. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. And Hi. if folks if folks want to to get uh, to get more of your writings, uh, where are they going to go to? Uh Probably my my uh, uh, books would be a great place to start my novels on Amazon. Again, just enter my name, A-K-E-R-S as in Sam, and either Hailstorm or Abducting Arnold, and they'll pop right up. Um, I also regularly blog and uh, contribute articles at lewrockwell.com. Uh, I contribute a couple of other places. Um, I'm looking at uh, writing another novel right now, so I, I'm not writing as much for other uh, uh uh, newspapers and magazines, but uh, I've, I've been in places like the New York Post, Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, Barron's, and uh, once I get my novel underway, I may start popping up there again, too. So, uh, um, But the, the novels on Amazon would be the best place to start, Hailstorm and Abducting Arnold. Okay. And uh, I'll relate to you that uh, in, the, uh, in the chat mail and in the emails I've gotten since we've been talking that... Uh, We've had several folks who have uh, who have asked if you will come back again in a few months uh, and speak <laughs> with uh, with us again. That's very kind, and and of course I will. It's been an honor and a privilege, and I I'm just thrilled to pieces to talk to someone as knowledgeable about the American Revolution as you are, and and I'm sure that extends to your audience as well. And I I would just love to speak with everybody again. Okay, that sounds great. Listen. Uh, don't stop what you're doing. Don't slow down. Don't take a break. Uh, and I know you won't. But yeah. keep pushing. Keep pushing and know that we're behind you. God bless and keep you in yours. And uh, thanks again for coming on tonight. Thank you so much. And, and the same back to you. All right. All you right. have a wonderful uh, evening. And uh, I'll contact you and uh, we can possibly set up uh, another date uh, in the uh, near future. Thanks so much, and God bless. Bye-bye. All right. Good night. Well, I appreciate uh, Ms. Akers taking the time to uh, to speak with us this evening, and uh, and I'm, I'm I will do my best to see if I can uh, to get her back on again uh, in a few months. Uh, remember that uh, that you can catch her writings at uh, lourockwell.com. Uh, she's been writing there for uh, for a decade now, and uh, and I'm a, I, I regularly read her works, and I go back and reread them. And then uh, the two novels that she has out right now, Hailstorm and uh, Abducting Arnold, those are both available on Amazon. And uh, I would... Uh, I think that 
personally, I think that they are great works, and uh, and they are uh, they're a, a great read, very exciting, uh, and they're cram packed. They're historical fiction and historic and uh, uh, biographical fiction, but the stuff that she writes is not all made up. I mean, you have uh, uh, a great deal of the true and actual history that is the framework that the story rides on. And uh, and because she's to- she has chosen two subjects that are not written about, it's one of the only places you're going to get to hear uh, or get to read this information. So uh, I would uh, highly suggest that, uh, that you grab yourself a copy of, of both of these, grab the grab the uh, the actual physical book uh, rather than the Kindle, uh, so that you can take it uh, with you and uh, and you can even read it in a grid down situation. All right, that uh, that's going to uh, that's going to pretty much uh, wrap it up for tonight. Uh, I'm in the middle of doing. Uh, scheduling for the next couple of months now, but uh, as always, if there's any subject that uh, you would like to hear, any topics that you'd like to hear, you can certainly uh, go to uh, BattleRoadUSA.com and uh, send me a message through the contact uh, sheet there. And uh, we'll see you again this next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central, and uh, until then... God bless uh, and keep all of you and guide our hands in this task for uh, our cause is just. Who's that right? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. You know, God walked out in the cool of the day called Adam by his name. He refused to answer because he wasn't Tell me who's that right? John the Revelator, who's that right? John the Revelator, who's that right? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas. Now Christ had twelve apostles, three led away. He said, Watch for me, one hour. I go yonder and pray. I tell me who's that right? John the Revelator, who's that right? John the Revelator, tell me who's that right? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas.
John the Revelator wrote the book of 